within the history of our nation, there have been men who have inspired us by their courage. They've inspired us by taking action in a situation. We think of people like Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me death. When the nation was trying to determine who they were in becoming a great nation. We see people like Abraham Lincoln who reminded us that conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's what he said about our nation. Years later, Martin Luther King Jr. dreamt of a day where his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by their actions and what they did and the content of their character. And there are other people in history that we admire. There are people in history that we look up to. But then we look at Scripture, and in Scripture there are individuals that we look up to, individuals who cause us to want to have the same stand that they may have had. We think of Joshua. Before he left this world, he looks at the nation on the the eve of going into a promised land, and he tells them, listen, I don't care who you worship. You're either going to worship God or worship these false gods, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Apostle Paul reminds us that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus said that no greater love is this than a man lay down his life for a friend. We read these individuals in Scripture and they encourage us. They remind us that we can take a stand where we need to take a stand. But then we come to someone like John the Baptist. Someone who's not preached on very often. Very few books are written about him. We read in scripture about him, but not a lot is preached or ever shared about him. And looking through all the books in my office, I came across one book. It was my Old Testament history book that dedicated a chapter to John the Baptist. A whole chapter. Every other commentary, any other book on Israel, Old Testament history, usually gives us, or New Testament history rather, gives us just a page or two. But this morning, I want us to look at a man who came before Jesus, a man who came with a message, a man who would proclaim, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same man who would say, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The same John who would say, after me comes one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And it's the same John who would make this statement later. He must increase, I must decrease. We live in a world where we need the inspiration of men like this. We need these people to encourage us. We need them to give us hope. We need to help us see how we might live a life that is better. Live it at a higher level. Live it with greater intentionality, with purpose and usefulness to the Lord. You and I become better men and women when individuals like this are in our lives. Either the ones we read about in Scripture or the ones we read about in history, we are better individuals because of the lives that have come before us. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at a man called John, the son of Zechariah, who people would call John the Baptist, who people call John the Baptist, but for our purposes and in this series, we're going to call him the forerunner. The one who comes before. This morning I want to start our time with just a little bit of a background about who John is before we get into the main part of our subject this morning. We know that John was born six months before Jesus, 
yet he only spent about two years doing ministry. And even though he only preached and proclaimed God's coming Messiah for two years, Jesus said this about John. He called him the greatest person ever born of a woman. That's what Jesus says about John the Baptist. A man who only spent two years proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. A man who chose to live his life just a little bit different than everybody else. Yet a man who was the forerunner, the man who would come and set the table, so to speak, for the Messiah to show up. Yet he's the one of the least taught individuals in Scripture. We know about Jesus, we know about Peter, we know about Paul, we know about Mark, we know about John the Beloved, we know about Timothy, we know about Titus. We don't talk a lot about John the Baptist. Yet here's the interesting fact. He appears in over 23 chapters of Scripture. And his history is recorded over a 2,000 year time frame. And over 2,000 years, 750 of those years, John is talked about. In 2,000 years of Bible history, 750 we hear about John the Baptist. So this morning as we start our time together, let me give you six facts about John. Six things about John. And I'm going to say it now because some of you are wondering by looking at your bulletin, you're already starting to panic. I only marked two spots in my Bible this morning. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is I have listed a lot of scripture in your outline. I want to encourage you this week to go back and read these scriptures. We're going to look at a few of them. We're going to talk about them. They'll be on the screen behind me. But I want you to go back and look at them in your copy of God's Word when you have a chance this week. But let me give you these six facts about John. John was the forerunner of Jesus. When the angel came to Zechariah and tells him that his son would be the forerunner of the Messiah, Gabriel said these words in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elisha. That's what Gabriel tells Zechariah about this son to come, that he would go in the spirit and the power of Elisha. The word forerunner is, means the one who goes before and that's where the title of this series comes from. We're talking about the one who goes before Jesus. So we know he's the forerunner. The second fact, Jesus was a, John rather, was a relative of Jesus. John and Jesus are cousins. Because his mother Elizabeth is a cousin to Mary. And there's a family connection. Now remember I told you John was born six months before Jesus. But even in Mary's announcement to her from Gabriel. Listen to what the angel tells Mary about Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 verse 36. Your relative Elizabeth, even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. So we know he's the forerunner. We know that he's a relative of Jesus. We know that John was the greatest man born of a woman. I just shared that verse with you a little while ago. But Jesus also said this about John in Matthew 11, verse 14. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elisha who is to come. Remember, Elisha was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And Elisha had the final words of the Old Testament. And when we read the last book in Malachi... Listen to what Malachi says. 
before we even get into the time of the New Testament. Malachi says in chapter 4, verse 5, I'm going to send you the prophet Elisha before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. But then Jesus says this about John. I tell you that he is more than a prophet. He says that in Luke chapter 7, verse 26. A few verses later, again, Jesus makes this statement. I tell you, among those born of woman, no one is greater than John. Now, in history, we have heard people try to proclaim that they are the greatest. The boxer Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. Newsflash, you're not the greatest. But John was according to Jesus. Here's the next interesting little fact about our man John. He was a rabbi. Now this is important. We're going to see this in the coming weeks. But here's what we need to understand about this term rabbi. In first century Israel, rabbis were very rare. In a hundred mile radius, there were only about 10 to 20 rabbis that would have lived within walking distance to where Jesus lived and grew up. But to become a rabbi, here's what's important. To become a rabbi, you had to memorize and master the entire Jewish scripture. But more importantly, you didn't become a rabbi until you received authority from God. That's the important part. Back then, they just didn't lay hands on people and say, hey, guess what, you're a rabbi. That's not how it worked. Though today, in today's history, that's how it works. A person who desires to be a rabbi, they would go to school and they would understand and learn all of that. But in John's day, that's not how it worked. Another rabbi would literally have to see God working in his life. And here is the interesting, I'm going to teach you a word today. In Jesus' day, the rabbis did not get ordained, they got smica. Say that with me, smica. You got to say it with that really thick accent to make it work. Shmica. Shmica. What that meant was that God had come down on you, that God had touched you, that God had given you the authority to be a rabbi. So as we read in Scripture, what would happen is two rabbis would have to come to an individual who they saw God working in their life, and they would literally, they would lay hands and confer Shmica onto him. And that made him a rabbi. That meant that he could interpret scripture. They weren't just explaining scripture, but they were interpreting God's word to the people. So how does John get Shmica? How do we know this has even happened in his life? For just a moment, take your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 3. I want to show you a situation where John is dealing with his disciples we're going to understand where this comes from, this idea of him even being a rabbi and having Shemaika upon him. But in John chapter 3, starting in verse 25, notice what Scripture says, starting in verse 25, there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. The word that I want you to pay attention in this verse this morning is the word disciples. Teachers of the law did not have disciples. 
but a rabbi had disciples. So how do we know this? Look at the next verse. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John's disciples call him Rabbi. They confer what already has been conferred upon him, that he was a rabbi. So where does this come from? Where does the fact that he is a rabbi? Well, you got to go all the way back to Exodus. Moses is the first, considered the first rabbi, because he led the people and the people followed. Pop quiz, church. Moses had a brother. What was his name? Aaron. Very good. Sunday school teachers, you were doing a fantastic job. Aaron. And remember, he had a brother, and they put their hands on 70 men and gave them a measure of God's authority. So Moses and Aaron gave them a measure of God's authority to become judges to the nation of Israel. The Jewish people believed that the judges would find others with those skills and knowledges and would put their hands on them. And slowly over time, authority was passed from one person to the next, was passed from a teacher of students from generation to generation. So in the time that Jesus comes, there were a few, maybe a dozen rabbis within a hundred-year span of Jesus' life. And the Jews believed that the authority to be a rabbi came from Moses. So that makes John one of the most rare and magnificent men of God in the tradition and the line of Moses. You see it in that verse, verse 26, when the people refer to him as rabbi. And we're going to dive more into that in the coming weeks. But let me give you the fifth fact about John. John came to prepare the people to receive Jesus. John is the forerunner. John is coming to prepare the way. John 1 verse 7, this is what John the apostle says about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. So John's purpose was to prepare the people to believe in Jesus. It was his purpose to come and share and also to come and baptize. John chapter 1, verse 31. I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. John was baptizing to let people know that one was coming after him. John baptized for repentance. Jesus was to come baptizing for a different reason. But then John also says this about himself. He says that he must increase and I must decrease. This was the mission. John doesn't stand up and say, hey, look at me. I'm important. I'm a rabbi. I have God's authority in my life. So y'all have to listen to me and do as I say. No, John says in chapter 3 that he must decrease and that Jesus must increase. I can't make it about me. I must make it about him. And then here's the sixth thing about John this morning. John was Jesus' mentor, partner, and inspiration. And let me explain what I mean. Every turn in Jesus' life, we see the influence of John on him. 
Let me give you this quick little rundown here. John's birth preceded Jesus's and encouraged Jesus's mother. We see that in Scripture. And I have the verse listed there, excuse me, and I encourage you to read it later. Later, John's baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It wasn't until John baptized Jesus that Jesus began that ministry. Remember what happened as soon as Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days to prepare for what is to come. Before he started teaching and healing people, he goes into the desert to prepare. We know that John's ministry was a model for Jesus' early ministry. In the first years of Jesus' ministry, it almost mimicked what John was doing. And we see those similarities, and you have the scripture there to read. John's imprisonment prompted Jesus to begin choosing disciples. It wasn't until John is in prison that Jesus started picking and choosing disciples. In that first year of ministry, Jesus is building his reputation. When John is in prison, Jesus realizes that he must call and train disciples to follow him. John's death prompted Jesus to retreat and perform the miracle of Moses. We see that in Matthew 14. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeding the 5,000 is similar to Moses crying out to God to provide manna for the people. We see those two miracles and how they intertwine. But again, I share one more fact with you that I shared earlier. John appears in 23 chapters of Scripture over 750 years of history. John is an important individual, yet we don't talk a lot about him. And again, I've given you all those scriptures for you to read and for you to see for yourself. But here's the one thing I want you to remember as we move forward this morning. That John's coming is simply to give encouragement and give comfort to a people who needed it. This morning, how many of you need some encouragement? Does anybody need any encouragement this morning? Does anybody need any comfort this morning? This is what John is going to give us as we read scripture today. And this is what we're going to see in his life, in him being the forerunner. Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn over to Isaiah chapter 39. Because that's where we're going to be for just a little bit, 39 and 40 specifically. But I want you to see and give a little bit of a history lesson. When we get to Isaiah chapter 39, it's a dark day for Israel. The kingdom has been divided in half. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You have ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. And we see the split of that nation. At the time, when you read about this split, there is another nation called Assyria, where Iran is today. Assyria wants to make its move into the northern kingdom. It wants to take the people hostage and take them back to Assyria. And the people are scared because they know an army is potentially coming. They know that this army lives in their vicinity and they are scared. So God does what he does when his people are in peril. He sends them a prophet, a statesman. He sends them someone to speak on his behalf. 
God sent Isaiah the prophet to speak to a nation. For 36 chapters, Isaiah warns them, hey, Assyria is coming. You better be ready. You better repent and turn back to God. They are coming, and only God's going to stop them. All this time, he is preaching the same message. Be ready, they're coming. Turn back to God. And in chapter 37, King Hezekiah seeks out Israel's counsel, and he prays, and he says, will you please pray to God to forgive us as a nation? Will you pray to God to prolong our days? Will you ask God to intervene? And God says this to Hezekiah, because you asked, I will postpone my judgment on Judah. Now, there's a moment where we go, that's done. Assyria is not coming, but another nation would come instead, the nation of Babylonia, and they would come and take hostages because the nation is still doing their own thing. The punishment was still coming. It would come from a different nation. So for your history lesson, for just a second, Assyria today is modern Iran. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. The nations we read about in the history books, the nations that we see that are at war with everybody else, are nations we read about in Scripture. And let's be honest, not a whole lot's changed in history. You still have two nations warring against the world. But look at Isaiah 39. And look at verse 5. And look what Isaiah tells the people, starting in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Imagine hearing those words. Imagine hearing that your children and your grandchildren are going to be carried off by a foreign nation. Imagine that people are going to have their lives ended by a nation who wants to wipe them out. The people hear this word and they're devastated. These people are worried. They mourn. They cry out to God and God hears them and God responds because we go from the bad news in Isaiah 39 to the good news Isaiah 40 look at the good news this morning starting in verse 1 of chapter 40 of Isaiah this is what God says he says comfort yes comfort my people says your God speak comfort to Jerusalem cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Comfort the people. That's what God's word says. He says, comfort the people. But then we read verses 3 and 4. These same words in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, we read them in other places. We read them in Matthew 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1. All quote this same verse, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And look what scripture says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every nation and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Here's the encouragement for the people. Here is the hope for the people that there is one who is coming who's going to make a way for God. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This forerunner is going to come and declare the glory of God and this forerunner will appear to all humanity and be that person to be that encourager for a time that is dark. It's a message of hope. It's a message of, of encouragement to a community that needed to hear it. But then you see verse 6, and the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. What Isaiah is reminding the people, and he reminds us this morning, is listen, your perspective is really small. The way you see things is really small. Yes, things are going to happen. Things are going to get rough. Things are going to get tough. But notice the last part of verse 8. It says that the word of God does what? The word of God does what? Stands forever. That means no matter what comes our way, no matter what the world throws at us, what the devil throws at us, what our friends throw at us, what family throws at us, the word of God stands forever. That's encouragement. That is hope. That is comfort. In a world that will tell you that we are wasting our time this morning, gathered together on a Sunday morning to read from an archaic book. Yet we are here because we need hope. We need comfort. We need encouragement. Look at verse 9. O Zion, who brings good tidings? Get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold our God. Behold our God. Up to this point, Isaiah is talking about the forerunner. Isaiah is talking about the one who's coming. But when you get to verse 10 and 11, Isaiah says, here's the message that's going to be proclaimed. The voice crying in the wilderness, the voice we read about there in verse 3 is John the Baptist. Because we know that because all four Gospels reference that verse when they talk about John the Baptist. God tells Isaiah to tell the people, there's someone who's coming. There's someone who's coming who's going to stand on God's word and he's going to proclaim God. But now Isaiah tells the people, years before John even shows up, he tells the people, here's the message that the forerunner's proclaiming. Here is your comfort. Here is your encouragement. Here is your hope. Verse 10, 
Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That is good news. That is good news for a people who know a nation is coming to take them away. That one is going to come later who proclaims who God is, who prepares the way for the people. So this morning, we're talking about how God prepares the world. So this morning, let me give you the message of the forerunner. The message of the forerunner. Here we go. Because this morning, if you're discouraged, if you're afraid, if you're worried about what's going on, I want to encourage you, listen to what God tells us through the forerunner. Listen to what God's word tells you this morning so you don't have to be worried, so you don't have to be afraid because you have a God in heaven who is already intervening on your behalf if you're a child of his. So what is the message of the forerunner? Here we are. And here's the reminder. We see it in Isaiah. Number one, when I am discouraged, God is not silent. When I am discouraged, God is not silent. Verse two, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Some translations may have this word tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I love that word comfort. I love that word tender. And tenderly, it means that I have a God that when I'm discouraged, he speaks comfort to me. He speaks tenderly to me. He's not brash. He's not bold. He speaks in words that are an encouragement to me when I need them. Isaiah, two chapters over, is going to talk about the comfort that God is going to bring with the Messiah when he says these words. He says, he will not cry or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break as a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. We see that in Isaiah 42 verses 2 and 3 in talking about this forerunner. Think about it. How softly do you have to walk in the woods and not break a twig? There are some people who are real masters at it. There are others of us who break everything we walk on when we go in the woods. But think about how hard it is to do that. Yet we have a Messiah who doesn't break like a reed, isn't bruised like a reed. Think about it. How hard is it to speak and not blow out the wick of a candle? It's a reminder of who's the come. Think about it. When the prophet of Elisha was discouraged when Jezebel was coming after him, God said he spoke to him in a gentle whisper. The Israelites are discouraged because the Babylonians are coming and God has sent a prophet to speak tenderly to them. For the Israelites, when we get to the New Testament, they're discouraged because they're under Roman authority. They're discouraged because they haven't heard from God for 400 years. And then John the Baptist shows up to speak tenderly, to speak softly about what God is fixing to do. 
When you and I are discouraged, God speaks to us silently. And I want to remind you something this morning. God is always talking, but you may not always be listening. Does that make sense? Here's why. Sometimes we have the noise of the world turned up so loud we can't hear God. Or we've got the noise of the world turned up so loud we don't want to hear from God. But I can promise you this, if you will stop and just listen. Don't listen for the big sounds. Listen for that gentle whisper. Listen for the voice that's talking to you. Listen for the voice that loves you. Listen for the voice who sent his son to die for your sins. It's in the stillness of that silence and that small voice that we hear him. Not in the crashing sounds of thunder and lightning. But it's that still, small voice. So we know that God is always going to speak when we're discouraged, but he speaks silently. The second reminder is this. God always has a plan for his people. God always has a plan for his people. Again, look at verses 3 and 4 in Isaiah 40. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places shall be made smooth. When a king would come into his court, they would sometimes roll out this royal carpet as the king walks into the room. The forerunner is announcing the coming of the king of kings, and when he comes, listen, forget the carpet, we're going to straighten the highways. We're not going to make just one little section for him so he can walk on and not get his feet dirty. Look what God says. He says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Not a little path, but a highway. Make straight. Fill out the low spots. Knock down the high places. Smooth out the ground. Because our king is coming. For the forerunner to say this, that God has a plan, and his plan is to smooth it all over. God always has a plan. We may not always understand it. We may not always see it, but God has a plan for his people. And here's the third reminder. God always has words of hope for his people. Again, look at verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord will appear, and everyone's going to see it. That's what Isaiah is reminding us this morning, that we see and we worship a God who gives us words of hope. Think about what God had already told the people. Listen, the Assyrians aren't coming. You're okay. But it's another nation coming. But guess what? Even though the Babylonians are coming, there's still one crying in the wilderness who's coming to bring hope. You may not see it, but those who come after you will see it. Those who come after you will experience this hope. Number four, God's plan, God plans so thoroughly. He not only planned for Jesus, he planned for Jesus' forerunner. Think about that for a moment. 
Not only does God have a plan in place for the Messiah to come and save us from our sins, God had a plan for the forerunner to come before the Messiah. Again, look down at verse 9. O Zion, who brings good tidings? Get up into the high mountain of Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with strong hands, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his work before him. He will feed his flock like a sheep. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. These are John's words about the Messiah. John's saying, are you scared? Are you worried? Do you feel small? Do you think your circumstances seem overwhelming? Guess what? The Messiah is coming, and he is coming with strength that you cannot fathom. Strength to overcome. So when trials come your way, when hard times come your way, guess what? You can stand because he's right there with you. Why? Because he gives you hope. You may not believe this at this moment, but he has hope for you because Emmanuel, God, is with us. The message we read this morning in Isaiah 40 is for three people today. It's for, it's for discouraged people. It's for discouraged people. It's for a people who are worried about being conquered in the future. Remember, this message comes years before John shows up. So it's a message for those who know troubles coming, who are discouraged. But it's also a message for those who were conquered by the Romans. It's a message for the people who have already experienced being overrun and overthrown by another nation. But the message this morning that we read in Isaiah 40, it's to us. It's to us today. Listen, many people feel tempted because of what's going on in their life. They're tempted by addictions. They're tempted by sickness. They're tempted by debt and the feeling of loneliness and discouragement. Again, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Listen, if you need encouragement this morning or hope this morning, look at verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. If you're a part of God's flock this morning, will you raise your hand? I'm putting some people on the spot this morning. If I'm a part of God's flock, if I'm one of his sheep, and remember, sheep aren't very smart, but think about this. I need a shepherd to hold me. I need a shepherd to give me comfort. Look at what scripture says here. The great shepherd. Change the scripture around just a little. And think about it this way. He will feed me, his child. Like a shepherd feeds sheep. He will gather me in his arms. He will carry me close to him. That's the reminder this morning. John is saying, listen, I am leading you. 
and I'm going to lead well, but there's one who comes after me who's going to lead better than I can lead, and he's going to carry you in his arms and hold you close to him because he loves you that much that he's willing to give his life for you. That's what the forerunner is proclaiming this morning. There's one more thing I want you to get this morning from the forerunner. John was a man. He was human. There's nothing special about him. John is like you and me. Yet God used his voice. He used his words to encourage people that were hurting. And listen, this morning God can use you and me to encourage others. This morning, if you're discouraged, God will speak tenderly to you. Like a bruised reed, he will not break. Like a smoldering wick, he will not be put out. God will provide those in our lives that have a heart for him and have a love for him. And if you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember this, that God uses people to encourage discouraged people. God uses people to encourage discouraged people. God uses people like that. Listen, my prayer this morning, church, for those of you who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, my prayer for you this morning is that you can be an encouragement to somebody who needs to be encouraged. That's my prayer this morning. That you can be an encouragement, that you may be that still small voice that someone needs to hear who's going through a difficult time, whether it's personal, whether it's financial, whether it's health, whatever it may be, you may be that still small voice that speaks hope and encouragement and truth into their life. You may, be the, may need to be the person this morning who reminds that friend, that coworker, that family member, that loved one. You may be the individual who reminds them of what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30, when Jesus said these words, and it's a reminder for all of us this morning. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, you may need to be an encouragement to someone. You may need to remind them of what Jesus' words tell us, that they need to take that yoke they're carrying, that burden they're carrying, and take it off and give it to Jesus because he can handle it. But the only way that takes place in your life is by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, how can you speak hope to someone? How can you speak encouragement to someone? You can't. You can only do that if you're a child of God. This morning, you have heard hope. You have heard encouragement. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you first going to apply it to your life? But second, how are you going to share it with someone who needs to hear it this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, as we move in time, into a time of response, a time of invitation, John the Baptist tells us about the one who comes, the one who's going to feed his flock, the one who's going to hold us close to his arms. But that only happens by having a relationship with the shepherd. It's only accepting the reality that this shepherd that Isaiah talks about, who's going to be proclaimed by this forerunner, 
that this shepherd is going to pay a price for my sins and for your sins, and he's going to pay it all. And it's only through that that we have forgiveness. It's only through that that we have encouragement. It's only through that we find hope. This morning, I don't know where you are in your relationship to Jesus. There may be some this morning under the sound of my voice, you've never asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You've heard the message of the forerunner. You've heard the proclamation of the coming of the one who's going to save them. But you've never accepted that free gift this morning. You can do that. There are some this morning who may have forgotten. You have forgotten what Jesus has already done for you. And you're discouraged. And you're walking around as, you, as if you have no hope. You have hope. You have encouragement. The problem is you're not listening for that still, small voice. This morning, and maybe for some here, they need to refocus their life, rededicate their life back to the God who sent his son to die for their sins. This morning, there may be some here who desire to be part of this fellowship. There may be some this morning just need to come to the altar and lay that burden they're trying to carry. Because the longer they carry that burden, the longer they have no hope, the longer they have no peace. So this morning, you may just need to come to this altar and take that burden, take that yoke, and give it to Jesus and let him deal with it. Whatever needs to be done this morning, allow the Spirit to speak into your hearts as individuals. And as you sing, remember what you're singing and why you sing. Father, as we move into this time, we simply pray that your will be done. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.